Welcome in. It's Hump Day, December 30th. This is a day I always get a little tear in my eye because my dad would have been 96 today had he still been with us. I sent a note to my brother and said, hey, could we, in four years, do something really special to honor both of our parents? And I think that we'll put something together. That'll be really, really cool. Call it the Centurion Lap or something. (laughs) So, happy birthday, Dad. Sending you love. Ah, wow. So, the keywords haven't changed much. (laughs) If you've been following along this week, why, we have these, well, it's kind of a challenging week. The baked-in theme is this illusion-delusion. So, now this square with Neptune and Venus is spot on. 18 degrees today, both of them. That's a bingo. And then we have this opposition between Mercury and the moon. So things like communication could be a wee bit challenged today, or it could be emotional. Put it to the Cancerian element of the moon, where when these things come up like we talked about yesterday, it might just bring emotion with it. Everything else that we laid the groundwork for on Monday is still in place. So let's roll now the Stephen Forrest excerpt from the Book of Earth. And he is going to set up the concept of spirit versus flesh, as only Steve Forrest can. Spirit and flesh, an ancient marriage or an ancient argument? The first premise that it is an ancient marriage is beyond debate. Just look in the mirror. There's your evidence. Something deep and luminous inside of you is beholding that reflection, and it is contemplating it through the eyes of a primate. Spirit and skin are indubitably married, and reflecting on the prospect of their inevitable, eventual divorce is a famously productive meditation. What about spirit's argument with the flesh? That's an ancient notion, too. And it's uniquely human. Cats and walruses don't seem to be bothered by it. We see the anti-flesh argument in many aspects of life and culture, but it has often been formally institutionalized in religious doctrine. So many of the world's holy books have taught that the body, and really the entire physical world, is the mortal enemy of spirit. More about that venomous lie in a moment. But fear not, in the book of earth, we will come down on the opposite side of that debate. We will see the flesh, and flesh is central to any human understanding of the earth element, simply as the place where spirit potentially comes into actual manifestation. In the New Testament of the Bible, in the fifth chapter of Galatians, St. Paul tells us, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. That's a pretty clear message not to trust your body, but not so fast. Before we bash the Bible or fall on our knees before it, here's the 14th verse of the Gospel of John. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. So, according to Paul, spirit and flesh are irreconcilable antagonists. While according to John, spirit can actually become flesh and remain pure and unsullied. Hey, Bible, which side of this argument are you on? 
I did a lot of academic Bible study many years ago when I got my bachelor's degree in religion at the University of North Carolina. And I do mean academic. This was a non-sectarian education, not preparation for the ministry or anything like that. After that college experience, I came away with the realization that, on many subjects, the Bible does not speak with one single voice. It was written over a millennium or two by a lot of different people, representing a lot of different cultures and traditions. The marriage of spirit and flesh is a very tricky theological subject. Basically, the Bible is a compendium of all the arguments. The religions of the East show a similar ambivalence about spirit and flesh. The body is seen with a mixture of revulsion. It is a trap for the soul. And glory. It is a possible vehicle of liberation. Take the traditional Buddhist meditation practice called Paikula Manasikara, usually translated to mean reflections on repulsiveness. You focus on 31 body parts, one at a time, reflecting on a feast of graphic adjectives regarding their impurities. Body hair, tendons, bone marrow, kidneys, large intestines, small intestines, and so on. There's another practice from the Satipatthana Sutta. This one is really not for the faint-hearted. If a monk sees the corpse of someone who has been dead for two or three days, swollen, blue, and festering, he should think, My own body is of the same nature. Such it will become and will not escape it. Neither of these practices are indicated for anyone with body image issues. And yet, paradoxically, Out of that same Asian cultural soil sprang the great tradition of yoga, so popular in the West now, and clearly a celebration of the physical body as a pathway to higher states of consciousness. Many of you listeners have walked that path and have direct knowledge of its validity. There, in the East, we find that same spirit-flesh ambivalence, very much like what we saw in the Bible. Speaking of yoga, how many practitioners are doing their asanas there in class because of their zeal for spiritual evolution versus the number who are there in pursuit of a cute butt? But wait a minute here, Steve. Where do you get the idea that there is some kind of natural opposition between the desire for enlightenment and the desire for a cute butt? Might they actually not be opposites at all? (laughs) How can I plead? Guilty and I'm hoping for the jury's mercy on the basis of the fact that I grew up in churches and then moved on to Buddhism. Unless you are sitting in a pew in a conservative church listening to this book of heresies, St. Paul's words, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, probably ring false for you today. In contemporary society, we tend to celebrate the flesh, In fact, we think of little else. Beautiful bodies are everywhere, at least in the media, driving everyone a little crazy with desire and comparison. Opposites spark each other, eternally. Along with the pervasive worship of beautiful bodies, we see the inevitable countercurrent of body shaming. It is everywhere, too, and not just in the form of bullying. Every time you see one of those beautiful bodies on a billboard or in an advertisement, doesn't the message include a nasty little subliminal message about your own shape? Pick one. 
a cute butt, or enlightenment? Many people today are going to have to give that choice some lengthy thought. How many of us are content with our bodies? Not many. A Psychology Today study from the late 1990s found these results, which I suspect would be even more dispiriting were the study to be repeated today. 56% of women say they are dissatisfied with their overall appearance. Their self-disparagement is specifically directed toward their abdomens, 71%, body weight, 66%, hips, 60%, and muscle tone, 58%. Men show escalating dissatisfaction with their abdomens, 63%, weight, 52%, muscle tone, 45%, overall appearance, 43%, and chest, 38%. Several lines back, I quoted the Buddhist practice of Paikula Manasikara, where we are taught to sequentially shame 31 of our body parts. And I know sequential shaming is not the term the guru would use, but that would be the result, at least for many people. I chose that particular practice as an illustration partly for its very obscurity. To almost all of us, criticizing our bodies, limb by limb, organ by organ, seems alien and weird. And yet, as you read the Psychology Today results that I just quoted, can you see how many modern humans are busily engaged with their own version of exactly the same practice? Every day, they silently chant their mantra, My butt is too big. I'm too soft in the middle. I suffer from thunder thighs. I'm a 98-pound weakling. My eyes are beady. I need a nose job. My sagging this, my sagging that. I hate my body. My body is not good enough. It's a short walk from there to, I am trapped in the flesh. We might as well be 11th century Benedictine flagellants, mortifying the flesh. Even today, Paikula Manisakara are us. The point is that even though the argument, or alleged argument, between spirit and flesh sounds antiquarian when we use Bible verses to illustrate it, the debate is alive and well today, and perhaps more poisonous than ever. Even today, the denial and shaming of this face of the earth element is the source of a tremendous amount of suffering in the world. And, as we will soon see, the issue goes far, far beyond questions about our relationships with our physical bodies. Those body questions illustrate the problem nicely, though, so let me take them a little bit further. Once, as a young astrologer in my early thirties, a woman had made an appointment to see me for a reading. Through mutual friends, I had learned that she had once been featured as a centerfold model in Playboy magazine. True to form, when I set up her chart in advance of our appointment, she had Venus conjunct her ascendant in Pisces. She had to be a goddess, right? Truth is, I was scared to see her, afraid that I would make a fool of myself by staring at her chest or asking her to marry me or something equally inept and goofy. When she knocked on the door, I was shocked by how normal she looked. I never saw her centerfold photo, but if I did, my guess is that I would not have recognized her in it. She was just a human being, attractive, but not supernaturally so. 
The point is that these people whom we set up as physical ideals and against which we are supposed to judge our earth selves do not actually exist at all. They are idealized products of lighting, airbrushing, and Photoshop. Strange as this might sound, those images actually come from a higher realm. They are archetypal ideals, in other words. But getting ahead of myself here, that does not mean that they are false, only that they originate in the pure domains of fire, air, and water, not in the grounded, warts-and-all domain of earth. We can visualize them, but we can't really see them walking down the street. I've never met film star Michelle Pfeiffer, but I'm not alone in thinking that she is one of the most physically beautiful human beings who ever lived. I actually think I would like her personally, too, and not so much for her physical charms as for this quote from a 1990 People magazine interview with her. She said, you know, I look like a duck. I just do. I should have played Howard the Duck. Pfeiffer is a Taurus with a Virgo moon, an earth child for sure. And at least, in her own mind, even she herself has not reached that fabled golden city of perfection. And with that comment, we approach the heart of the matter we are exploring in this book. The work of the earth family is the endless, impossible, noble, inescapable task of trying to bring that golden city down to earth which is to say, making it real. Quick little tease for what's coming up the rest of the week. So tomorrow we're going to be doing the Book of Air, and we will talk about the theme that it incorporates. So come back tomorrow to hear about that. And then on Friday, boy, we've got a double pack of keywords for Friday. So how will the keywords from Maestro ring in the new year? So we've got some good stuff ahead. Hope you have a great Wednesday. Sending love again to my to my daddy. Thanks, Dad, for everything you did and who you were. I miss you. Have a good day. Bye-bye.